Welcome to the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast, where we bring you amazing guests on the cutting edge of science, health, and business each week to share strategies that you can use to get the breakthrough you're looking for in your life. I'm your host, Dr. Nevada Gray. Joining me is my co-host, Chris Donahue. We're glad that you're joining us today. If you are enjoying our podcast, we invite you to hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. We love hearing from you. Today's episode is brought to you by Health Code. We all need vibrant health and sustained energy to live our lives to the fullest, especially during these busy times. You're likely eating enough calories, but they may not be the right calories to provide essential nutrition. That's called misnourishment, and it could be ruining our health. With Health Code Complete Meal, you'll get an optimized science-backed blend of protein, collagen, healthy fats, apple cider vinegar, probiotics, fiber, and vitamins and minerals without any added sugar, extra carbs, or anything artificial. It's not only nutritionally complete, it's also affordable and absolutely delicious. Stop the confusion of what to eat or not to eat. Formulated by a metabolic scientist and backed by nutritionists, Health Code Complete Meal is based on the latest research specifically to help you get as healthy as possible. With over 412 five-star reviews, this shake is one not to be missed. It's non-GMO, gluten-free, no soy, no added sugar, no artificial sweeteners, no artificial ingredients, and also tree nut-free. Save 10% on your first order with the code PaleoPharmacist. Link in the show notes. This shake, especially the vanilla flavor, is my go-to on busy days when I'm in the pharmacy. We hope you enjoy today's episode. And as always, please subscribe and leave us a review. We love hearing from you. The views expressed on the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast are the opinions of the hosts and guests and are not to be taken as medical advice as the hosts and guests do not provide medical care. Information is provided for educational purposes only. You should consult your medical provider in relation to your own personal health and prior to making any changes in your diet and fitness. Benjamin Bickman earned his PhD in bioenergetics and was a postdoctoral fellow at the Duke National University of Singapore in metabolic disorders. Currently, his professional focus as a scientist and associate professor at Brigham Young University is to better understand the role of elevated insulin in regulating obesity and diabetes, including the relevance of ketones and mitochondrial function. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and as always, please subscribe and leave us a review. We love hearing from you. Dr. Bickman, how are you? Welcome to the podcast today. Hey, Nevada. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be able to chat with you. Please call me Ben. Oh, thank you so much. Ben, I am so excited to have you here. I've been looking forward to this. When I let my family and friends and community know I was interviewing you, uh, everyone's following you on Facebook. Everyone's learning about insulin resistance and how to take back their health. And they just wanted me to tell you, thank you, thank you, thank you for <laughs> for everything uh, oh, my that, pleasure. That's nice. that you're doing. Um, so I, I just want to start the podcast. Uh, for those that may not be familiar with you, can you tell us a little bit about you and what you got, got you interested in insulin research? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so 
my, my interest started, uh, the first steps on the academic route actually started in the realm of exercise physiology. I was almost exclusively interested in muscle and, and, and what was occurring within the muscle cell to help it be bigger and better. Uh, but towards the end of that, of uh, my master's degree, which was that first step into academia, I had really almost totally lost interest in the muscle and then became much more interested in the fat cell. And it was because of a single manuscript that I'd found um, as a master's student, which detailed this process whereby as fat cells were growing, they were releasing pro-inflammatory proteins called cytokines. And this was su such a revelation for me because it was the first time I'd heard that fat cells secreted hormones, even these pro-inflammatory hormones that we call cytokines. I didn't, I didn't know that at the time, um, that, that fat cells were actually endocrine cells, much like the adrenal glands or the thyroid glands. They were very much contributing to sending these messages around the body. But then second, the fact that these messages were inflammatory proteins, that in my mind pieced together uh, these, these two, not only in my mind, in the scientific community, it pieced together these two growing problems, obesity and diabetes, finding that they always occurred together. What was the mechanism that was, that was resulting in, in obesity as the paradigm was and is at the time predominantly? Uh, what is it about obesity, the fat cell that is making the body become insulin resistant to the point of type 2 diabetic? And the secretion of these pro-inflammatory proteins was thought at the time, and I still contend it is, to be a big part of that mediating event of connecting the fat cell to diabetes risk. Yes, and your research is extremely interesting and empowering that there are strategies that we can use to take back our health. I just wanted to start the podcast also by setting a foundation for our listeners because we do have a layperson audience. Can you explain in basic terms what is insulin and what is insulin resistance and why is it important in terms of our health and cause of metabolic illness? Yeah. Um, uh, insulin itself is a small little hormone uh, that is released from the <clears throat> beta cells of the pancreas. And everyone is doing this all the time unless the person is a type 1 diabetic. In the case of type 1 diabetes, the person has lost those cells that make insulin. But for all the rest of us, insulin is a hormone flowing through the blood that is doing something at literally every cell in the body. Every cell in the body has insulin receptors, or basically these little doors that insulin can come and knock on and thereby tell the cell to do something. And whatever that something is depends on the cell. Insulin will do something different at a brain cell than it does at a bone cell and something different at a lung cell as it does at a liver cell and all the other cells in between. Now, uh, one of the main actions <clears throat> of insulin is to lower blood glucose, but that is far from its only action. But unfortunately, that's how most people think of it. They think of insulin as being no more relevant than just controlling blood glucose levels. We eat something starchy or sugary, glucose comes up. If that stays too high for too long, it's dangerous. So thank heavens insulin comes in to save the day. And when insulin comes in, it knocks on the doors of certain cells and opens up these doors that glucose can go through, thereby lowering blood glucose. And then insulin itself, having done its job, retreats back into the background and insulin comes down. Uh, now, in the context of insulin resistance, it's really two things. And we have to understand both of these items to understand insulin resistance in a clinical sense. 
It's basically these two sides of the coin that we call insulin resistance. The first side of the coin is, in fact, the compromised insulin actions at some cells. So some cells of the body, not all of them, but some aren't responding to insulin the same way they were before. That is the insulin resistance side of the coin that we call insulin resistance. The other side of the coin, however, is very often overlooked, but it is essential in understanding how insulin resistance causes so many chronic diseases because you have to have both of these and they always occur together. And that is the elevated insulin a condition that we call hyperinsulinemia. So this chronically elevated insulin, that is the other side of the coin. And that matters because while some cells aren't responding as well to insulin, some cells are as responsive to insulin as they ever were. Insulin is working as well as ever, but now that the body is swimming in a sea of insulin, now insulin is hurting the cell by doing, or the body, by telling the cell to do too much so the insulin is basically overactive. So we end up having this, this situation of extremes where in some cases insulin isn't working you know, despite the higher insulin. And in other cases, because of the higher insulin, is, insulin is doing too much. So we have these kind of polar responses that ultimately come together to create the situation that we call insulin resistance and then all the chronic diseases that come from that. And one of the most fascinating aspects of insulin that you spoke about in your book is the way that insulin works in fat cells. And mm -hmm. I, I learned the brain, the kidney, um, and the muscle are all main consumers of the glucose. So body composition can play a huge advantage in insulin sensitivity. And with the new year and focus on people looking to lose weight, uh, worrying about obesity, diabetes, their metabolic health, especially uh, with the current pandemic, we know that there may be, um, or that actually is a role of nutrition and fitness strategies in mitigating uh, these issues related to insulin resistance, which is the happy ending of your book in part three. Um, mm -hmm. We also have a following here on the podcast of people that are struggling with issues such as spinal cord injury, neurologic is issues, where immobility may be at play, they have muscle atrophy, um, you know, change uh, of muscle uh, turning to fat, and we see insulin resistance and obesity in this population as well. And I'm just wondering if you can explain insulin's role um, in obesity and how it acts on the fat versus the muscle cell and where the evidence has led us in terms of the best nutrition and fitness strategies that people can implement in their everyday lives. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so obesity is a very complicated disorder, unfortunately. While some want to claim it, that it is simply a matter of calories in, calories out, I, I very much support the idea that calories matter, energy matters. But if we're just looking at human obesity through the lens of thermodynamics or just calories, then we're missing some of the beautiful complexity of the human body and any animal, which is, which is in this case, the relevance of hormones. Insulin in particular, as the primary hormone, tells the body what to do with energy. And so long-term weight gain or obesity is going to be a matter of insulin being elevated, telling the cell, the fat cells to grow and store energy, combined with having enough energy available in the blood to actually push into the fat cell. You really need to have both of those. And I wouldn't want anyone to think I'm trying to advocate one over the other. 
as much it seems like someone would say, well, Ben is strictly an advocate of that it's purely that obesity is purely an insulin phenomenon. No, it's just I find that I have to say that side of the story a little louder because people don't want to hear it. They want to think it's just simply a matter of thermodynamics, purely just calories. Count the calories and you'll solve the problem. That is just not true. It's missing on some of the nuance that insulin helps provide. So overall, again, human obesity really will be a matter of uh, eleva elevated insulin, which itself is going to be a, a consequence of the foods that we eat. And nowadays, with, with everyone eating processed uh, foods that are very high in refined starches and sugars, and being told to eat six times a day, that is a wonderful way to make sure that insulin is elevated every waking moment and even well into the sleeping moments. Frankly, it is asinine advice that is largely at the heart of why we are as fat and sick as we are. It's this incessant consumption of refined starches, and we've been told to do it. And it's, it, it, that, I believe, is what's killing us, at least in part, because it's, it makes our insulin chronically elevated. The body is stuck in this mode of storing energy rather than burning it, especially burning fat. Because if insulin is high, fat burning is turned off. That, that is, it sounds like what I'm saying is kind of um, almost juvenile, but that is demonstrably the case. Bump up someone's insulin, the body shifts to burning glucose and stops burning fat largely. And if you want to lose fat, well, then that's not going to work. So that's kind of at the heart of obesity as I see it. Now, you'd mentioned a very unfortunate situation, which is immobility, where someone is a victim of circumstances where they simply cannot get up and move. The tragedy of that is muscles will waste. Uh, the body is too efficient to hold on to something as expensive as muscle if there's no need to hold on to it. And so as the muscle stops getting used, the body will prioritize putting energy in other places and the muscles will atrophy, in fact, disappointingly quickly. And the loss of that um, muscle will result in a harder time maintaining insulin sensitivity because the muscle is the main consumer of glucose. When we've eaten a meal and glucose has spiked, insulin lowers the glucose so quickly and so well because it can dump it into the muscles. The muscles are just such a wonderful reservoir of accepting this glucose. However, as our muscles are shrinking due to atrophy, whether by accident or just laziness, then we are losing access to that glucose reservoir and thus glucose levels will stay higher longer, insulin levels will stay higher longer and that just continues, that really um, adds fuel to the fire of promoting insulin resistance throughout the body. Now, if there's any silver lining, well, there's none. There's no silver lining in those instances of people that are immobilized due to injury um, and I wouldn't want to pretend there is. I would just say this, a person doesn't have to look at that um, with absolute helplessness because uh, all that does mean is that they have to be a little more strict on what is coming into the body because now they're having a little harder time getting it out, so to speak, you know, with regards to burning it, for example, um, uh, metabolically speaking. So if, if a person has lost the, abil the ability to clear the glucose as well and, and they're losing insulin sensitivity because of the damaged muscle, all the more reason to focus on what you're putting in in the first place. If you're having a harder time metabolizing the glucose, well, then just eat less of it. 
in there in the process you'll keep your glucose levels lower better you'll certainly keep your insulin lower better and thus maintaining insulin sensitivity despite the unfortunate circumstances and I think um, now would probably be the best time to ask the question uh, regarding glucagon. Uh, so, mm -hmm. for example, some uh, people that are on the low-carb to no-carb spectrum, they continue to have the high glucose, have uh, a weight gain or plateaus. And I was just wondering if you could explain some of the mechanisms that could be at play, what glucagon is and why it's important. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I love that glucagon has become a part of the conversation in the low-carb realm. And, and even a little egotistical part of me thinks I might have had a part to play there. Um, and, and that was uh, deliberate. If I did have a part to play, I'm thrilled because I really do believe it, it points a finger at a character or a player that we've just ignored um, to our detriment. So in the case of uh, – there's this, there's this group of people who will have a paradoxical – situation where they adhere to a low carb diet and they find either that their elevated glucose, which is maybe always hovering in the low hundreds, doesn't come down or it actually goes up into the into the hundreds, whereas it had been maybe hovering around the 80s and 90s before. In either case, I'd say that is an atypical response. You wouldn't expect it because you would expect, well, I'm eating less glucose, so my glucose will come down. There is no answer to this, Nevada, unfortunately. There is no explicit reason. We don't know why that happens. Um, I, I, in fact, I am just about to start um, a research st uh, uh, project looking at that exact question, trying to profile these people that have that paradoxical rise in glucose and identify what might be the cause. And in fact, it's a project that we're doing with Levels Health, this group that, that makes software to couple with continuous glucose monitors. Uh, so, so hopefully I'll have a more definitive answer um, maybe towards the end of the year or about a year from now. But in the meantime, I'll speculate. We know that there are people who have higher levels of glucagon. We know this happens in people with insulin resistance and outright type 2 diabetes. I wonder whether these people who have this paradoxical rise in glucose <clears throat> are also these people who in another situation might be more inclined towards type 2 diabetes, or maybe not that extreme, but just naturally tend to have a higher either basal glucagon or have a higher glucagon response to certain foods, like, for example, protein. We know that protein does elicit a glucagon response. Some people might just be more sensitive um, to the that protein and have a higher glucagon response to it than others, and that would um, that would be contributing to the elevated glucose. And very briefly, I'm sure most people know about this. Glucagon is basically insulin's opposite. Whereas insulin wants to lower glucose, glucagon seeks to increase glucose, and that's necessary and important. That's why we could fast for a whole week and our glucose levels would stay normal, it's because glucagon's helping keep the glucose normal. So we need it there. Neither insulin nor glucagon is, is, is a hero or a villain. In this case, some people just might have a more exaggerated glucagon response. Uh, and in fact, it might be reflective of the alpha cells, the cells that produce glucagon. They may have, over time, become insulin-resistant themselves. This is a phenomenon known to happen 
where insulin typically tells the alpha cells to stop making glucagon, but as, the gluca as those alpha cells become insulin resistant, then they aren't responding. The insulin's trying to turn off the glucagon release, but the alpha cells just pay the insulin no heed and continue to pump out glucagon as happily as they were before. Yes, that's such an interesting topic, and I'll be looking forward to following your research on that because I'm, I'm very curious uh, the answer myself. One of the things I truly appreciate in reading your book is the role that insulin plays in the body. It touches every single cell. Mm -hmm. It's the master hormone. I, I never really viewed it as the master hormone before. Um, but after I read the book, I realized it, it impacts estrogen, testosterone. Yep. It, it impacts our brain. Uh, insulin resistance um, is thought to be a cause. Uh, uh, proposed to be a cause for Alzheimer's, which is now called type 3 diabetes, migraines. And I was just wondering if you could share with us how insulin impacts our ability to manage our hormones and our cognitive functions. And specifically, is there a role for ketones in cognitive and neurologic disorders? And how do ketones mm -hmm. work in those instances? Yeah, these are great questions. So, questions. So uh, the first part of this uh, question, looking at how insulin affects hormones, it, it is quite obvious, and you'd mentioned these uh, a moment ago, its role in sex hormones. And in fact, insulin has a direct effect on, on sex hormone production in the gonads, whether it's testes in men or ovaries in women. It's a little known fact that all estrogens, and that's a small family of these prototypical female sex hormones, although men have them as well, just not as high as women, but all estrogens were once testosterone. Testosterone is converted into these estrogens by nature of an enzyme called aromatase. And not surprisingly, ovaries have higher levels of aromatase than testes do, which is then reflected in the higher levels of estrogens and the relatively lower levels of testosterone in women versus men. However, insulin inhibits aromatase. Insult, high levels of insulin are, are inhibiting that enzyme that is attempting to convert testosterone into estrogens. Now, in a woman, of course, this has catastrophic consequences because a normal menstrual cycle requires this dramatic increase in estrogens in order for ovulation to happen. So every month, to varying degrees, the ovaries are, pre are preparing these follicles that, that are each an egg, a potential egg. And then one of them, one of the follicles, because of the high, partly because of the high estrogen peak, one of the follicles will actually ovulate, releasing the egg. And then that process will tell all the other follicles through the both ovaries to go away, to get degraded and go away. However, to kind of bring insulin's relevance back in, the chronically high levels of insulin will inhibit that. It will prevent that. It'll that big estrogen peak, and now the ovaries were producing all these follicles, but never one was allowed to ovulate. Which one not only prevents fertility, of course, but also means that all those follicles will stick around, and then the next menstrual cycle will come, and now more follicles will start to grow within those ovaries. And so you have a woman whose ovaries grow to several times the size they should. And, and at the heart of it, at least partly in, in a big part of it, it's because insulin is too high. 
And we have to help the woman realize this, lower the insulin to allow aromatase to work, to increase the estrogens, and then fertility can return. And of course, the other side of this um, is that her, uh, as, as she cannot make enough estrogens, she's making too much testosterone. And so in some instances of this situation, polycystic ovary syndrome, not only is she not ovulating, again, because of the lack of estrogens, but the high levels of testosterone are making changes to her body that she doesn't like, like male pattern baldness or acne or more coarse facial or body hair. And that, once again, all of these consequences can come back to insulin. And then what ends up happening in the guy is actually a bit more convoluted where, where the man, um, like let's, let's take the, the, the man's version of the most common infertility, PCOS in the woman, and then in the man it's erectile dysfunction. What's happening in him, it's not necessarily a problem of low testosterone, um, although his fat cells start to behave a bit differently in the overweight man which the fat cell starts to act like an ovary in a man and it starts converting his testosterone into estrogens, um, which is potentially problematic. But even in erectile dysfunction, the most common form of, of male infertility, that is very likely, once again, a consequence of insulin resistance in those blood vessels, where for normal erectile function, the blood vessels must dilate dramatically to change blood flow in the area. And when those blood vessels become insulin resistant, they cannot dilate as well as they could before. And then that means a failure of erection and then the problems that ensue from that. So even the, the, these most fundamental forms of infertility in men and women, once again, we can look at them as um, branches off of this tree that we call insulin resistance. Um, now, to shift the topic a bit, but still answering your question, you'd mentioned cognition. To a degree, it looks like the brain becomes insulin resistant as well. And that matters because insulin helps the brain take in glucose for energy use. And as the brain becomes insulin resistant, the brain's energy needs are, you know, up at the top. But uh, as, as the brain becomes insulin resistant, glucose isn't able to meet those energy needs. And the brain is less capable at getting energy from glucose. And then the brain starts to suffer. But that is also room, there's, there's an opportunity there for the brain's other fuel. And that kind of wraps up um, your, your question, which is the role of ketones. The brain is very much a hybrid engine with glucose and ketones being its primary fuels. And thank heavens, ketones are not regulated based on insulin signaling or insulin sensitivity. Ketones can have free access into the cells of the brain, the various cells of the brain, and, and, not, and again, not be limited on whether or not insulin's working. So while the brain is becoming insulin resistant and glucose uptake into the brain goes down, all the more reason to allow the brain to have access to ketones because ketones can fill that energetic gap, thereby improving or restoring cognitive function. And there is more and more evidence coming out all the time showing just how therapeutic ketones really are for a brain that is experiencing some sort of cognitive decline, whether it's full-blown Alzheimer's disease or even something as seemingly much less benign, like migraine headaches, of course, not benign to the person who's experiencing them, um, but not as scary, perhaps, as Alzheimer's disease. Even in that instance, um, it appears that there's an energy problem, and, and, and ketones can help uh, solve that problem. 
Yes, and I'm very excited and hopeful for that research that's being conducted. So Ben, would you say in terms of type 2 diabetes and many of the, the chronic metabolic illnesses that we're seeing, that it would be fair to say that we may have a fundamental misunderstanding of type 2 diabetes and that the issue is not glucose so much as it is insulin, uh, because I'm sure many of our listeners may be asking, if my insulin is too high, then why would I be injecting more insulin uh, to control glucose yeah. when insulin uh, appears to be the root? And I was just wondering if you could speak to what the re research has shown with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what a great question um, that you're presenting. And what a wonderful question that these individuals would be asking when they kind of hear about this new definition, if you will, or this paradigm shift in how we look at type 2 diabetes, saying that it's an insulin problem and then wondering, well, then why am I putting more insulin in? That is a very good question to ask because as a scientist, I would say there's no good reason. And, and, and then I'll elaborate then on that. So we, we have definitely traditionally looked at type 2 diabetes as a glucose problem. And that's excusable because the main symptom of diabetes over the centuries, type 1 or type 2, has been the excessive production of urine. In fact, that's what the word diabetes means. It means this, this excessive urine production. And that itself was a consequence of the chronically elevated glucose. So the main symptom was itself a consequence of the glucose. So it is excusable that historically we would look at the glucose, but I would argue that it's much less excusable nowadays, now that we know what we know. And that is that insulin levels are always elevated in the case of type 2 diabetes. Now, there may be some instances where a person, it looked like they had type 2, we were treating them like they had type 2, and then ultimately they actually stopped making insulin altogether. Um, it, it genuinely, objectively low to little to no insulin, which then is really type 1 diabetes. However, if it's actual type 2 diabetes, you never run out of insulin. That's a stupid way of saying it. You never stop making insulin. And indeed, even it would basically it would follow a pattern where uh, the person would be evolving towards type 2 diabetes. And at the beginning of that evolution or that progression, insulin would be several times higher than it used to be, but the insulin is working well enough to keep glucose in check. And so it goes clinically missed because we never look at insulin. We only ever look at glucose. So that would, that would be prediabetes or insulin resistance, why it's so often undiagnosed. Because we're waiting for the glucose to change. It stays normal for decades, but happening in the midst of chronically elevated substantially elevated insulin levels. And then eventually the body gets, especially the muscle, so insulin resistant that now, even though the insulin levels are still higher, several times higher than they used to be, the insulin isn't working well enough to keep the glucose in check. And now the glucose levels start to climb. And then in some people, the insulin levels will start to decline somewhat, but still stay several times higher than a normal situation. And then that, that with that decline in insulin, the, the incline or the increase in glucose happens all the more rapidly and dramatically. And then it becomes very clinically observed based on conventional clinical you know, definitions, namely glucose. But, but what's so important then in this perspective is that type 2 diabetes really progressed 
because of the chronically elevated insulin and the insulin resistance that comes with that. And so when you, I use this analogy in the book, so it won't be nothing new to you, but, but giving this hyperinsulinemic type 2 diabetic more insulin and hoping it would solve the problem is akin to giving an alcoholic another glass of wine and hoping that will cure their alcoholism. You're giving them more of the very substance that has caused the problem. So giving a type 2 diabetic more insulin may lower their glucose, but it will make them fatter and sicker than they were before. That's what that's what happens when you give the more aggressively you give a type 2 diabetic insulin, the more weight they will gain and the more likely they will be to die from heart disease, cancer and Alzheimer's disease. There are studies in all three of these disorders. And so when someone asks me that question, I, I don't like to because I'm not their physician and I'm not giving them clinical advice. I, I will state conclusively, I think giving a type 2 diabetic insulin is the worst thing we can do for the person. Yes, and it's it's very concerning um, that given the the current evidence um, that that is still um, the main standard of care, and it's almost as if where insulin is the growth, it's it's shutting off the balance of the ebb and flow of the body being able to break down and rebuild. It's in a, a constant mm -hmm. state of growth, which would make sense uh, for cancer and uh, obesity and and such. Uh, with that being said. Many people, they use their uh, glucose uh, monitors, glucometers, uh, to monitor their glucose, which, uh, based on what we're hearing, is more an end-stage uh, type aspect. We should be looking at the insulin, which can show mm -hmm. decades before, which is something I learned um, in your book. And we now have the continuous glucose monitors for people to be able to look to see how food and exercise may be impacting them in real time. And I was just wondering if you could speak to the continuous glucose monitoring system, would we be better served in helping us reverse insulin resistance and looking at how food and movement is impacting our body um, in terms of uh, some of the strategies you've talked about at the end of your book, such as low carbohydrate diets and, uh, and different exercise strategies. Mm -hmm. How, how mm -hmm. would we better utilize that as a tool? Yeah, yeah, so I think it is a wonderful, very obvious tool um, for people to be getting and incorporating the data that they see from continuous glucose monitors, I think those can really have the potential to be a game changer because it allows people to observe and make their own changes without ever having been told to. If, if for example, if a type 2 diabetic snaps on that glucose meter, the, the continuous glucose monitor, and they see that they're eating the foods they've been told to eat, which is these starchy, you know, a whole grain bread. And they see, and they look at their glucose and realize, holy smokes, that bumped my glucose up to 200. And it, it, it didn't even come back down to uh, low hundreds after two hours, which is a pretty bad sign. They would see that. And in contrast, they would see, wait, I ate a big juicy steak and my glucose didn't move at all. Uh, that there's something incredibly powerful in seeing that in, in real time. And so my hope is with CGMs, they will help people come to their own behavior. And I'm certain in many instances, adopt a kind of lower carb diet just because they see what works. Now, uh, when it comes to 
interventions, diet is the single most powerful thing to do. That is the elephant in the room. Any effort to control insulin resistance or long-term glucose control um, in the absence of diet changes is going to fail. It'll only ever be just skirting around the edges of the real problem. And I, in, in, at its simplest, I think the best dietary strategy is one that follows maybe I'll say four pillars. Um, controlling carbohydrates, so focusing on the least starchy fruits and vegetables and being very careful with grains and, of course, even more careful with processed starches and sugars. The second pillar is prioritizing protein. Make sure that a person is focusing on good natural sources of protein. And by natural, I mean animal-derived. Don't waste your time or money on plant-derived proteins. And then uh, third, don't fear fat. Realize that fat is an, a primary part of the human diet. We have always eaten it, and we should. And in fact, we should eat it the way our ancestors did, which is getting fat from animal sources and fruit sources. Now, that's often a point of clarification there. And the, the, the fruit fats are coconuts, avocados, olives mostly. But the, our ancestors would have simply had to get the flesh of the fruit and they would have needed no more technology than just squishing it. They would just step on it or they would press it somehow and then you'd have an oil from that, from that fruit. Those are ancestral fats and they're the fats I believe we should focus on. And then lastly, the fourth pillar, it would be to um, fast. Don't feel the need to, to eat every two or three hours. Give your body a break and push it um, insofar as you're comfortable pushing it and go for certainly 12-hour fasts each night and maybe on occasion 16 hours and then maybe even eventually 24 hours um, for food fasts. That is a wonderful way to help insulin drop and thereby improve insulin sensitivity. And really what you'd mentioned a moment ago, I loved, which is allowing the body the opportunity to go through that cycle of breaking down and building up. That is the key to overall health, I believe, and it's certainly the key to maintaining lean mass. You need to give the muscles a break from constantly building. They need to break in order to build back better. What would and, be- and, then, and then exercise, and sorry, you, you'd asked exercise. I would say this, Focus on, um, so one of my, one of my maxims is eat smart to be lean, exercise to be fit or, or strong. And, and so exercise insofar as you, you want to have your body capable, you want it to do things. You know what, for example, one of the main reasons I exercise is I want to be a very involved father and in 10 years or 15 years or 20 years, I want to be a very involved grandfather. I want my body to be capable. I want to have demands of my body and have my body realize or meet those demands. So you exercise to be capable and strong, but also to maintain muscle to help maintain insulin sensitivity and help mitigate the risk of all those diseases. Yes, and you've done a wonderful job in outlining that in part three of your book uh, called Why We Get Sick. So everybody get yourself a copy of this book. It's, it's a phenomenal book, uh, eye-opening and loaded with strategies uh, to speak with your physician and take back your health. Um, ben, you also have Insulin IQ, which is a wonderful educational uh, program on Facebook. You, you do Facebook Lives with your coaches. I've learned so much. My family has learned so much. What does 2021 hold in store for you? Yeah, what, a, what a great question. So first and foremost, of course, 
I am husband and father. That is so. What does twenty twenty one have in store for me? Uh, quality family time, and me constantly trying to be a more patient, loving father, and of course, always a very attentive, caring husband. So that is the most important part of twenty twenty one. And then, in a far less important, but more, uh, in, more relevant to the discussion at hand, with regards to science. Um, I, I, I do hope that Insulin IQ and Health Code um, do prove to be valuable tools to people where Insulin IQ provides this, um, a degree of coaching for those who need it and, and Health Code provides a, you know, an, an immediate sort of low-carb, high-fat, high-protein solution to people trying to make that dietary change. Uh, I, genuinely, I do hope those prove to be valuable tools because as a scientist – I, I find answers to questions, um, but it's sometimes frustrating finding answers to questions when you don't think you can do anything about the answer. And so I know it sometimes upsets people to hear that a scientist is involved in these kind of commercial or entrepreneurial efforts. But if there's any sort of altruistic aspect to it, it is it is born from a genuine hope that this can be part of a solution for someone. And I would never claim to, to state that either – um, or both is is the only solution, not at all. But some people will want the coaching. Some people will want the ease of a well formulated, or you know, I would say best formulated meal replacement shake. And in that sense, I'm I'm happy if those can be of value. And then the book, um, I've just been delighted by the response. And Nevada, you've been such a wonderful advocate of it. That book was really written from a, a once again a genuine desire to share with people what I believed was a perspective on health and chronic disease that was not, that was just being totally overlooked. And, and, you know, we've touched on a lot of that here today, talking about insulin resistance um, and in its sort of origins and consequences. I think the more people that know this, whether it's coming from me or someone else, the better they will be able to control their health. Yes. And, I just want to thank you again for your leadership in science and for truly being a professor of the people and, ex and explaining this in a way that people can understand and be able to implement strategies in their lives and also giving people hope and options. So I appreciate that and we appreciate your time today. And guys, I'm going to put all the links in the show notes so that you can find uh, Ben, order his book, and connect with him online. So thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you so much, Ben. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast. We are now available on iHeart Podcast and all of your favorite podcast listening platforms. As always, hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. We love hearing from you. If you're interested in being a guest on our podcast, send us an email. Link in the show notes.